Hello and welcome to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. Parliament is back in session and no other policy issue has dominated discussions on the Hill more than the proposed tax changes from the Trudeau government. They were first pitched over the summer and now have created a lot of controversy with the opposition, small business owners and doctors all speaking out. Here to break down what these changes are and whether or not they will hurt or help the middle class is McLean's Ottawa Bureau Chief John Geddes. The third round of NAFTA renegotiations kick off this weekend. This time the talks are in Ottawa. One trade expert says the important trade discussions are now moving on to more contentious issues and that may bring a more tense tone to the table. We speak with trade lawyer Lawrence Herman. And we end off our show with an extended exit interview with outgoing Governor General David Johnston. McLean senior writer Paul Wells sat down with Johnston at Rideau Hall, where the two discussed what's next after seven years as GG, what he thought of the prorogation controversy that was still hanging over the office when he first took the job, his last visit with the Queen, and whether the monarchy still has a role in Canada. For your politics, for your power, welcome to The Hill. We want to be absolutely clear. Our goal is to have a system that is fair, one that makes sure that we don't encourage the wealthy to have a lower tax rate than the middle class. That's Finance Minister Bill Morneau, who faced a lot of criticism this week as Parliament returned for the fall sitting. The issue at hand was the government's proposal to change the tax system for small business owners and make it a little bit more difficult for them to lower their tax bills. Conservative leader Andrew Scheer and the rest of his party made it the biggest issue on this first week. Scheer's claim is that the Liberals are attacking small business with an outright tax grab. Meanwhile, the Trudeau Liberals are saying, no, they're just preventing rich Canadians who own small corporations from paying less tax than the middle class, as you heard in that clip. It's all complicated stuff, really. So to help us walk through all of this, I'm joined now by McLean's Ottawa Bureau Chief, John Geddes. John, thanks very much for being here. Hey, great to be here, Cormac. So what is it here, John? Is it a tax grab or is it tax fairness? Yeah, it depends who you believe, of course. It's complicated. This is one of these stories. There's no use pretending you can just boil it down to a couple of facts. There are three things the Liberals are sort of setting out to do here. One is to make it harder for small businesses to spread income around. People may have heard the term income sprinkling. This is spreading around either wages or dividends to family members to cut their tax bill. The second is to change the capital gains tax rules in a way that would also make it harder for small business owners to shelter cash from income taxes that way. And there are controversies around those parts of the plan, but the biggest bone of contention, I think it's fair to say, is what's called passive investment income. So this is when a small business, you know, could be a doctor's office or a farm or a restaurant, invests some excess money in maybe bonds or mutual funds. This isn't the money they're using to run their business. The government points out that well-off entrepreneurs and professionals, including doctors, can shelter off a lot more money that way than other Canadians can in, say, registered retirement savings plans or tax-free savings accounts. So the idea Morneau is just sketching here is to discourage that kind of passive investment by taxing the, the returns businesses get on that kind of investment at such a steep rate that they'll no longer want to do it. So if entrepreneurs and small business owners have been using these tax breaks as sort of a retirement savings fund, what are they supposed to do now? Yeah, well, the government says a lot of things, but one thing that they're saying is, hey, RRSPs, tax-free savings accounts, those are available to everybody. 
So why don't small businesses just save that way? I put this exact question actually to Pierre Pauly of the Conservatives uh, Combatives <laughs> Finance Critic. Why don't we listen to how I framed it for him and then you'll hear uh, Mr. Polyev's answer. I think that what they're thinking of is that anyone can invest in an RSP or a tax-free savings account or both. That's the basic way we all can shelter our income for taxation. It's open to everybody, whether you own a small business or not. So as I understand it, if you've got the spare cash, you can put 26000 into an RSP, 11000 into a TFSA. That's 37000 you can easily shelter. Anyone can. No fancy planning involved. So who has more than that? I mean, if you're a small business and you have more than $37,000 in income that you want to shelter in a single year, well, you must be in that you know, slice of small businesses who are doing very well, right? Wrong. Wrong. The, uh, the, reason is, the reason it's wrong is that RSPs are a terrible tool for small business people, and that's why many don't use them. I had one accountant tell me that farmers, for 90% of farmers, according to this accountant I spoke to, don't use RSPs because they have serious penalties on withdrawal. And businesses need to be able to withdraw their cash and savings on a moment's notice in the event that there's a fire at the premises that's not entirely insured, uh, there's a sickness among one of the leading members of the business, uh, there is a major city construction project out in front of the restaurant uh, that you uh, operate and therefore your revenues tank 90%, or if you're a farmer and your fields are flooded or there's a drought, you need that money now and you can't afford to pay RSP penalties on it. So John, if I have this right, his argument is that small business owners just can't use the same type of saving vehicles as any other Canadian can. Yeah, that, that's the case. And the government is going to have to make a better case, I think, than they have so far to explain why they think that's wrong. But beyond the sort of technical issues, I think at root, their main point is this. There are about 1.8 small businesses in Canada. These are what are called uh, Canadian-controlled private corporations. But Finance Minister Bill No says out of that nearly 2 million businesses, only a small fraction of them, he, he claims only about 90,000, are making enough passive investment income for the rules he's proposing, the, the clampdown he's proposing, to seriously increase their tax bill. So he's saying this really only hits a small number of these businesses. It really only hits uh, the richest of them. And if that's true, then... You know, is this sort of saving really as important for most small businesses as the opposition Tories claim? So if 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 it is true, I mean, you know, why is there such an uproar if it's only a small amount of small business owners and, and professionals who are already making a lot of money? Yeah, that's interesting and, and ultimately a political question. I actually talked to uh, Jennifer Robson about this. She's a professor of political management at Carleton University. It's here in Ottawa. She is very broadly supportive of Morneau's tax reforms. And she thinks what's happening here, at least in part, is that tax planning professionals, we're talking accountants and lawyers, who have advised their clients to make increasing use of these small business tax rules in recent years, these guys are helping drive this debate uh, let's listen for a minute to Professor Robson. So notwithstanding the fact that even if you propose tax changes that um, may in fact be more equitable, more transparent, um, easier to comply with, you know, all those good things in tax policy, more neutral in terms of the treatment of, 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 of different forms of income, um, that there, I think, I think change can be frightening to people, right? And I have been struck by the degree to which a number of uh, voices of opposition to this debate are coming um, from people who they them they themselves personally may not be impacted, hmm. right? 
um, and that there has been perhaps there there has been perhaps um, a blurring of the lines where you've got you know sort of the financial planning experts who have been advising um, wealthier professionals to use these structures and whatnot and. You know, some some number of clients might be potentially adversely affected. We'll we'll have to see. We'll have to see. We don't really know exactly what's going to happen in practice. Um, but there's, that there's been perhaps a bit of a contagion, right? So I think I tweeted about this a couple of weeks ago. That like, for example, if I was a medical doctor in Canada, who I like, I I spent most of my time thinking about how to give the best treatment to my oncology patients, for example, right? But I had been over the years dealing with the medical association's financial subsidiary, um, who you know, who helped me incorporate, gave me all the advice, um, you know, was managing all of my assets and my savings, and both my association, my professional association, and my financial planner were telling me, "Be afraid, be very afraid." I, then I might be. Okay, John, the lobby effort, that's the issue here. At <laughs> yeah, least she's, she's trying to put it into context, saying, "Let's think about who's." putting out this yeah. message. Well, well off people with smart tax advisors. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So that's, that's part of what we're talking about. And then beyond that, beneath that, I think this is a, an argument that has some pretty potent political symbols in it. It's not just technical tax code stuff, small businesses. That, that's a highly sympathetic group. Basically, if you say the word small business, people like it. Rich professionals, you know, maybe less so. And I think a lot of this is going to come down to who succeeds in defining the issue on those terms? Will it be the Liberals saying this is a matter of well-to-do Canadians, uh, you know, who don't want to pay their fair share and should be made to? Or will it be the Conservatives saying it's job-creating small businesses who are being unfairly targeted? And I guess it's, uh, in terms of messaging, it's not just the small business owners, John. The, the Conservatives are also talking about the family farm. Family and farm, and who yeah, else is more sympathetic to than the family yeah, farm? Absolutely, yeah. That's a, though, I'm sure the people who are fighting the government would like this to be about farmers, restaurant owners, those kind of small businesses. They'd like to keep the focus away from, say, doctors and lawyers, who, who are without question some of the people who make the most use of these kind of tax breaks. But John, the, the Liberals also kind of gave themselves an out with yes. all of this because they floated this as a trial balloon. Mm -hmm. They kept it, you know, targeted but vague at the same time when they introduced these measures in, yeah. the, in the summer. But there's no legislation yet. So there are no, you know, devil in details kind of moments yet because we don't know what the details are. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. They they actually give themselves different options on this passive investment thing, and that's way more you know sort of the subject matter for tax pros to hash out than we're, what we're going to do here. But suffice to say, when you have options, you have options, right? So that uh, right now you can bet the people in finance, Mr. Morneau's operation, are looking and saying, okay, what are the tweaks we can do here that might help those small businesses who just really want to do the stuff that. Mr. Polyev was talking about a while ago, which is save money to reinvest in their businesses and do the kind of stuff we want small business to do. How can we sort of give some relief to those people, but still crack down on that minority of small business owners who are really using this primarily just as a vehicle for saving lots of money for their retirement? So I guess when these measures are put forward, you think there's going to be a lot of little asterisks next to some of these measures so that people are protected and you take some of the political steam out of the opposition? It's it's entirely possible. But, you know, one of the problems, Clark, when you talk about asterisks is, is this stuff, when you get past the rhetoric and into the details, it is so dense. I spent a lot of this week talking to tax lawyers and other experts on the phone, and I can tell you, 
this is hard stuff to understand. You get into stuff about, you know, ineligible dividend treatment and what's called integrating the tax system. So there's fairness between different types of, you know, business and personal income. It is really complex. So part of the challenge here will be a political communications challenge. Who can boil this complicated, dense stuff into messages that the voting public can understand? Wow, dense tax policy. Sounds like you <laughs> had a great week, John. That was John. great. It was super fun. Great. To, <laughs> glad to be back. All right. Thanks very much. Okay. McLean's Ottawa Bureau Chief John Geddes talking to us about the tax changes being proposed by the Trudeau government and the target of fierce criticism from the opposition conservatives. Still to come on the show, we speak with a trade lawyer who tells us why the third round of NAFTA talks happening here in Canada will be more tense. And we have an exit interview with Governor General David Johnston, who talks about everything from his last meeting with the Queen to prorogation. Welcome back to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. Coming up on the show, we have a special exit interview with outgoing Governor General David Johnston. But first, round three of NAFTA renegotiations are underway this weekend in Ottawa as Canada gets its turn to host the talks with the U.S. and Mexico, which will update our country's most important trade deal. While the first couple of rounds have been largely quiet and professional, that could change as the negotiating teams move on to some tougher topics. Here to break it all down for us is Lawrence Herman, a trade lawyer and trade policy expert based in Toronto. Thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure. So where are we right now? Let's take stock about where we are in these NAFTA renegotiations. Where do we stand in terms of our talks with the U.S. and Mexico? Well, two rounds have taken place, and this is round three. Uh, Who knows how many rounds we're faced with. Uh, supposedly there's going to be seven or eight rounds. It could be longer than that. But uh, the negotiations, in effect, are just getting rolling. It takes a while to really build up momentum. Uh, there have been a lot of uh, things put on the table so far in areas that are, I think, mostly non-controversial. I think we're now going to start to see some uh, fireworks because uh, the U.S. will be putting on the table some of uh, their proposals, which... Uh, judging from what has been said to this point in time, uh, will be much more controversial than what has been on the table up till now. So what are those issues? What are those controversial issues that you expect the U.S. to put forward now that we're into the third round of negotiations? Well, they'll be putting forward, uh, we believe, and I'm not inside the room. You know, I'm an outsider uh, like you, but I've been following these things. I think they'll put uh, on the table some of their proposals for uh, the automotive sector, uh, for increasing uh, U.S. value in automotive production. That's one of the things they want to do. Uh, I think they're going to put on the table some proposals on the uh, in the agricultural uh, sector, some uh, procurement proposals as well, which would supposedly give uh, uh, greater preference to uh, buy America uh, measures, i.e. favoring U.S. suppliers in uh, U.S. procurement projects. Uh, those are three or four of the major items that are likely to be put on the table. They may start advancing some of their ideas to remove the binational panel system, uh, and uh, possibly to uh, adjust 
the investment provisions in the NAFTA. So what I'm saying is we're now going to be getting into some of the more controversial elements and the more difficult elements for Canada. Okay, so let's take a look at the auto sector here, the rules of origin issue. that mm-hmm. That's, uh, you know, for our listeners, it, it's making sure that a certain amount of the products that go into, let's say, a car being built are all manufactured within North America, whether it be Mexico, the U.S., or Canada. Well, I think what the Americans want is uh, to uh, adjust that to, say, a certain percentage of uh, the components of an automobile, of a vehicle, have to be made in the United States. That's the whole objective of Mr. Lighthizer, the U.S. Trade Representative. It's to increase the U.S. content uh, in uh, automotive vehicles. Isn't this difficult, though, because when these, you know, the certain parts were laid out in the trade deal when it was first negotiated, you know, a long time ago, I believe, 1993, 94, you know, cars have changed so much. You have electronics that are produced in, in other countries that you, you just don't get in North America. So doesn't that add another layer of, of difficulty when trying you're to really work this out? You're absolutely right. And the automotive sector has pointed out that they have established supply chain arrangements based on the NAFTA framework. And any changes to the NAFTA that upset those uh, very... Uh, detailed and uh, highly refined production chain arrangements will be a problem for them. Secondly, uh, there are uh, many, many economists who point out that if you jack up U.S. content uh, rules, you're going to make North American automobiles much more expensive, and they'll be less competitive uh, vis-a-vis non-North American production. So those are the kinds of issues that uh, have caused concern on the Canadian side. All right. And on the flip side of that, though, if if we do see, let's say, the electronics issue become uh, rolled into NAFTA, could that possibly spark investment in those technologies here at home? uh, No, I don't think so. Look, uh, electronics are produced uh, much less expensively and much more effectively, much more efficiently, Uh, in uh, China and some of the Asian countries. And uh, changing the rules to require electronics, of all things, to be produced in North America or in the United States is just going to jack up the cost of production. Uh, The fact is that um, automobile manufacturers and assemblers in North America rely very heavily in their supply chain arrangements on low-cost electronics coming from uh, the Far East, among other places. And all that does is, importantly, give the American manufacturers, the North American manufacturers, a competitive edge when they're competing with third-country manufacturers like the Europeans. So you're saying that we're, we're moving towards, whether it be auto or other issues, we're moving towards a more contentious issues. Uh, yes. Do you think, I mean, we saw what happened when uh, Minister Freeland decided to walk out of negotiations over CETA when there was a big bump in the road with the, with the Wallonians and the whole deal almost fell through. As we, as we move towards these more uh, frictious issues, do you expect a big tone change at the table? Because so far... It seems to be going well in the sense that everybody's remaining professional, but do you think that uh, we could see a big change in the way all sides deal with this uh, now that we're into the third round of talks? I think that things will certainly change as we get into these difficult issues. Uh, whether uh, it uh, deteriorates <laughs> to, to uh, fireworks 
and uh, explosive uh, reactions, you know, is questionable, but certainly there will be a change in tone. I think we can expect that in this round and going forward as these negotiations become much more contentious and uh, uh, address the, the difficult issues. In your view, any signs so far that uh, Donald Trump could just rip up NAFTA? Do you think uh, anything's popped up that would warrant that as of yet? At, at the present time, no, but we have not got into the difficult issues, as I said. Uh, but uh, Trump has said that uh, he may walk away if uh, if the negotiations don't uh, uh, go his way, something like that. You know, he, he's threatened to walk out. Uh, to me, uh, if I may say, I'm not a government person, I'm not a diplomat, but I think that's bargaining in bad faith. I think that's what uh, we're faced with, uh, bad faith bargaining with a threat to walk out and uh, kill the negotiations if you don't agree to what the U.S. wants uh, you do agree to. We know the U.S. really wants to get this done as quickly as possible. It's only round three, I know, but uh, how close are we to finishing these talks, do you think? We're very far from finishing these talks. The negotiations have to unfold. We have to go through a number of rounds. The teams are working at breakneck speed. There's no doubt about that. The pressure is on. The uh, the people engaged in the negotiations from all three governments are working very hard, uh, very diligently, uh, under tremendous strains and burdens. Um, but it will be very difficult to settle on these very complex issues within this tight time frame, in my view. That was trade lawyer Lawrence Herman discussing the third round of NAFTA renegotiations taking place in Ottawa this weekend. Still to come, we have an exclusive exit interview with outgoing Governor General David Johnston, who sat down with Paul Wells at Rideau Hall to speak about what's next for him, what he thought of the prorogation controversy that was still hanging over the office when he first took the job, and his last visit with the Queen. Welcome back to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. In the last half of our show, we're going to be featuring an exclusive exit interview with outgoing Governor General David Johnston, who's in his final week or so in Rideau Hall after seven years in the position. Former astronaut Julie Payette is scheduled to take over on October 2nd. McLean senior writer Paul Wells had the honor of sitting down with Johnston for a lengthy conversation at the Governor General's residence. Johnston and Wells chatted about everything from what's next for the outgoing GG, what he thinks of the prorogation controversy involving his predecessor back in 2008, and whether or not the monarchy still has a role in Canada. Here is the first part of that exclusive interview. After just about seven years uh, in this wonderful building, Rideau Hall, I wonder whether you're uh, anxious to leave or sorry to leave. Certainly not anxious to leave. It's been a, a wonderful uh, seven years, but um, appropriate to leave. Uh, one is asked to do these things typically for a five-year term, and I was uh, asked to stay on for a further ten, two years, so that's a, a seven-year term. And it's been a joy for my wife and myself to see the country as we have seen it uh, through uh, this uh, office. And one operates one's life in a series of stages. I've been in a university all my life and typically you take an administrative appointment for five years or six years as a term, always expecting you'll return to being a professor. I'm a professor of law 
and I guess that's the way I see my life, uh, doing this assignment for seven years, doing it as well as we can, and then moving on to the, to the next stage with many more good things to do. Okay. I went back and reread some of your uh, speeches that you've given over the time that you've uh, been the Governor General, including your installation speech, and I was struck by how, right from the beginning, you used a term that you've used in countless uh, speeches and, and, and public moments since then, which is the idea that Canada is a smart and caring nation. Why was that important to you as a theme? I think, first of all, because it touches the most fundamental values of the country. Uh, we are a country that does have a concern for our neighbor, our community, and therefore our country, that we think beyond ourselves and our immediate family. And throughout our history, I think we've had a sense of, uh, of a sharing experience with others and trying to ensure that collectively we, we raise our communities and uh, try to ensure that equality of opportunity functions for all of our people, not just selected portions of our population. At the same time, I think we try to do that as sagely, as wisely as we can, and that's the smart part. And again, for me, that's part of the equality of opportunity, especially through a public education system, where one tries very hard to ensure that the uh, opportunity to develop one's talents to the full are available to all of our citizens. And guess what happens when you have a, an environment of that kind people find that their talent capacity is even more substantial than they earlier thought it was. To some extent then, it's, a, it's almost a continuation of your role as a university president. Um, I was also struck by one of the very first speeches you gave after the installation. You spoke to the Ontario legislature. And by the genteel standards of, of a viceroy, you kind of lit into them on, on Ontario's uh, uh, research and innovation performance. Uh, um, it was uh, quite, a, quite a, a, a strong speech because you said we're not uh, producing enough PhDs, we're not uh, producing enough uh, private sector research. Were you nervous about making that strong as a, a declaration and, and, and do you think that those uh, issues have been addressed by successive governments? Well, I think we should have high expectations for our country and I suppose I've been somewhat of a spokesperson for that. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a good country and we can do better because there are parts where we don't do as well as we should. And I, I think I've seen my role, not simply in this current job, but uh, as an educator to draw attention to those areas where we can and should do better. Is that something you plan to keep on focusing yes. on in, in your next life? Yes. <laughs> okay. Do you have any, can you tip your hand on what that, what that role will entail? Or? Uh, it's uh, no, by no means definite at this point, Paul. I've been anxious not to be fixing my next engagement uh, while I'm still in this one, but I will, I'm a, a law professor, so I'll continue to write law books. We're doing a sixth edition of a book called Canadian Securities Regulation that I first wrote in 1972 or so. Huh. I work with my former students. We'll probably do another book called Trust in Canada, looking at the concept of trust, of uh, how, uh, what it is and why it's important, how you measure it, how you encourage it. The Edelman Trust that you probably know about their annual surveys, uh, eight years now, for the first time in those eight years, Canada is a distruster nation. That is more than 50% of our population uh, don't trust their public institutions. Uh, so we're now around the middle of the pack in terms of that uh, evaluation of trust. We used to be in the top third. And so that, that notion of trust is important to me. I'll continue with uh, um, a fair amount of pro bono work. I'll chair the Rita Hall Foundation, which we established to extend the external ambit of uh, the Office of the Governor General. And then I will go back to a couple of my business interests, particularly on the international sphere in Canada's uh, trade and investment opportunities uh, on, a, on a global basis. Okay. We were chatting earlier and you said that you had been particularly interested in the international component yeah. of your 
role. Yeah. How does that fit into everything else that you do? And, and why did the inf international uh, aspect um, jump out for you? Because it's so important. Um, important that Canadians see themselves as global citizens as well as Canadians to engage the world from an economic point of view to see ourselves as competitive uh, around the world. Um, in terms of uh, international diplomacy and public affairs to play as constructive a role as we can as a middle power, um, which um, I think the world greatly needs uh, some other voices to try to get at the resolution of conflicts rather than the enhancement of conflicts. I want to get back to this question of trust because something you just said stru struck with me that Canada used to rank near the top of, these, of this Edelman Index on, yep. on trust and now it's fallen quite a ways back. How did that happen? I think it's partly the age that we live in um, generally um, and we're going through the relatively early stages of a new communication revolution, the digital revolution. We're still sorting it out how you establish what is truth, Pontius Pilate's question to Jesus, what is truth, what is authentic. Uh, just to deviate for a bit, one of the other indicators in the Edelman Trust is um, where do you get your news, where do you get your facts? Majority of the people of the United States, the United Kingdom and France do not get their news from respected journals like yours um, or the traditional media. They get it from social media or ideology or chat groups, etc. I mean, that's fine up to a point. You know, people can involve themselves in trivia, that's fine, and interaction with friends, etc. But if you lose the ability to discriminate uh, as to what uh, is relevant and, and what has an authenticity to it, you begin to get into some difficulty. Um, so I think that's one. It's the age we're going through of, uh, of figuring out how to use these new forms of communication. Um, I think also we... Um, the world is more unsettled today, I suppose partly because of the age of acceleration. Things are happening, change is happening so much more faster than we've ever believed. And it's not linear, it's geometrical. I often use uh, an example that, to illustrate how, how rapid that age, that acceleration is now. It took over three centuries for the printing press to reach a majority of the population in Western Europe. Um, and it was enormously liberating. It took Western Europe, which was a backward society compared to China, India, Islam, etc., and vaulted it into uh, an advanced society. But it was over three centuries for the printing press to liberate the mass of population. It took the internet less than 10 years to reach a majority of the world's population. And the internet came into being in 1993, and that's accelerating. Uh, we're having difficulty dealing with that, the human capacity. And all the more reason, I think, that we work hard in this country at trying to developing, develop that discrimination of judgment so people can determine for themselves what makes sense, what adds up, what has a track record of authenticity and, and truth. And that's why good journals like McLean's are really important in this country. We will take that endorsement. Thank you very much. That's the end of the first half of our exclusive exit interview with outgoing Governor General David Johnston. Coming up after the break, Johnston discusses the prorogation controversy that was still hanging over the office when he first took the job, his last visit with the Queen, and whether or not the monarchy should still have a role in Canada. Welcome back to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. 
We now continue our exclusive exit interview with outgoing Governor General David Johnston, who tells us about his final meeting with the Queen and whether or not he thinks his predecessor, Mikhail Jean, was right to prorogue Parliament during the coalition controversy of 2008. Without any further delay, here is McLean senior writer Paul Wells speaking with Governor General David Johnston at Rideau Hall. You came to office at a time when trust in the office you were inheriting had been strained by the coalition crisis of 2008, by your predecessor's decision to uh, grant uh, prorogation to the Prime Minister. First of all, do you have anything to say about that decision? It's, it's still being debated today by, by, um, by uh, <coughs> constitutional scholars. Yeah, we should know more about the uh, convention of prorogation and dissolution. They're two different concepts. Uh, and. Um, Prorogation, in fact, is uh, granted quite commonly through the tenure of a particular government, and uh, it's on the advice of uh, the Prime Minister. And the theorists would say that only in the most exceptional circumstance would uh, the Governor-General exercise a, a right or a power that the Governor-General has uh, to uh, postpone or somehow uh, deter prorogation, because that would be uh, assuming to a non-elected authority, uh, the authority that normally lies in the in the hands of the people who are elected to govern the country. Okay. <clears throat> so the guy, Stephen Harper, uh, who came to visit her on that day was the Prime Minister. He was, he was advising the Governor General and she should take the advice. It, it, it's, it's, it's pretty much that straightforward? Yeah, well, I don't want to get into a specific case of, you know, what's right or wrong. What I do want to emphasize is the importance of understanding those conventions um, and that, um, that with respect to those conventions, um, there is a, a theoretical basis for them. Uh, and whether one exercises them or not um, uh, is a judgment on in a particular circumstance, but one must weigh all of the, the evidence and circumstances to move to not a specific case, but another one of dissolution of, of legislation through the 19th century here in this country. That happened with some frequency at the provincial level with the lieutenant governors. Uh, it's almost unheard of now uh, that a lieutenant governor or governor general would exercise that theoretical right. And in my judgment, rightly so. I think the last time it was done in England was Queen Anne's reign in 1707. And in fact, she reversed a uh, bill of parliament because there was a change of government. And I think that bill was going to allow the Spaniards to build ports in Scotland, which was, uh, which was reversed. And uh, appropriately so, um, because um, we live in a constitutional monarchy with a parliamentary democracy. And our democratic institutions must function and must function well. Um, and uh, in a democratic uh, fashion. Meanwhile, um, the, um, the Governor General, or the Queen in the case of uh, the United Kingdom, uh, have uh, certain uh, responsibilities. But um, the responsibility that I suppose would be um, of greater importance in any one of those critical situations would be, in Badgett's words, the, uh, the responsibility of advising, encouraging, and warning. And warning would happen uh, very infrequently, but you certainly would use the power to warn before you would do anything as calamitous as uh, denying a piece of legislation. Would anyone ever find out about that besides the Prime Minister and the Governor-General in question? Probably not, uh, certainly not from the Governor-General. Um, those conversations should always be under a cloak of uh, confidentiality. Um, what the Prime Minister, who is the elected representative, has to say about those things would be his or her own judgment, um, but um, certainly not uh, from the Governor-General. How much of a sense did you have when you were named to this office very soon after that crisis 
to what extent did it feel like your job was to get that sort of question right the next time it was put to you? Uh, felt highly responsible. I'm a lawyer by trade. Yeah. Um, and so we uh, systematically, first of all, looked for the precedents that we could gather. Um, then systematically, we put together a, a table of potential questions that could arise, minority government, etc. And uh, then what we thought would be the answers to those questions and then the principles on which those answers were based. Uh, and then the precedents, especially the Canadian precedents, precedents both federally and provincially because the lieutenant governors of the ten provinces and the commissioners of the three territories have similar powers. And, and then we, we've shared that as a confidential document with uh, the other vice-regal members. Um, I'm advised by the, uh, the clerk, my principal advisor, um, a wonderful rapport, I must say, with the three clerks uh, with whom I've served, and then uh, the Department of Justice with its fine, fine lawyers. But they also advised the, the prime minister, the elected head of government, uh, in certain things. So uh, we found it necessary to have an independent stream of advice in addition to that. And so we, uh, we have that with... Uh, three uh, people who serve uh, pro bono and uh, with them uh, we put together this table that I mentioned and continually update it and share it with our colleagues in the Lieutenant Governor and Commissioner's office. Huh. Three clerks you've worked with, two Prime Ministers, Stephen Harper and Justin Trudeau, very different uh, gentlemen. How has the change in Prime Minister changed the way that you uh, carry out your role and, and what, what, is, what, is, what has the rapport been like? Well each one is different of course, um, the three clerks each different uh, uh, each uh, remarkable people in their own way. Uh, so true with the two prime ministers and, and my rapport with both has been uh, I think very very good. Uh, I've uh, enjoyed it if one is allowed to enjoy that relationship. I found it wonderfully uh, learning uh, through them. Um, they are uh, different individuals. Uh, Mr. Harper was very disciplined um, in the uh, the meetings we would have um, and uh, would uh, uh, have a, a, a series of uh, issues on, on which we would exchange views. Mr. Trudeau is uh, more informal um, and um, very spontaneous. Um, I've known him for a long time because our our children played together with uh, with him and his two brothers as uh, as uh, lovers of skiing. Um, oh, yeah. So uh, we've known him from the time he was age six, and so it's been a a friendship for, for a long period of time. And he, of course, was a student at McGill when I was there, very prominent. Uh, student and um, we had the occasions to interact there. With Mr. Harper, I've known him for a long time as well, probably for, oh gosh, 25 years or so um, through his various uh, public policy and political things. And so I should say that uh, for me, it's been um, a, a wonderful experience to interact with the, those prime ministers each in different ways. Okay. Your other main interaction is with the Queen. Yes. Um, tell me about your last visit with her, quite recent. Well, it was a bit nostalgic there because we both knew it was the last time uh, we would see one another in this capacity. And uh, of course, the Queen is now 91. Uh, she is remarkably uh, physically and mentally acute, uh, and it's a, a wonder to be with her. Um, I think we've had 10 visits over the course of the seven years. Uh, the very first one um, was really remarkable. Um, we we were, went to visit them in August, a month and a half before I was sworn in, and we were very lucky, Paul, because they spend the month of August at Balmoral in Scotland, and uh, we didn't realize this, but um, we went with all sorts, of, all the formal clothes you can imagine, and expecting a high degree of formality it was anything. But I don't think we ever put on a, a stitch of formal clothes. As a matter of fact, uh, we came down for breakfast the first morning we were there, and uh, Sharon, my wife, loves horses, and the Queen loves horses, 
and they were heading out to the stables, as you'd expect two horse lovers to do, and Sharon didn't have any appropriate shoes, and the queen says, oh, just a minute, my dear, and she rushed upstairs, she came back down, she says, we're the same size feet, these will fit. So that's what Sharon wore for shoes for, for the weekend we spent with them. Um, and that was just the beginning of a, uh, a relationship that we treasure very much. Uh, we found both her and her husband um, so down to earth, um, so warm. Um, in her case, so very wise. And uh, each time we've had the chance to meet, um, I have a sense of uh, someone who's seen more history, I think, in its acute form than any, any living person. And it's been uh, really quite a thrill to be able to interact with her. I read somewhere that she has been the queen for every Canadian Governor General, from Vincent Massey, for every Canadian born Governor General, from yep. Vincent, Vincent Massey mm -hmm. to yourself. When her reign ends, would it be an appropriate time for a debate about the role of the monarchy in Canada? Well, I'm sure there will be, uh, as this debate is uh, going on at all times, and, and um, appropriately so in a democracy. Um, and other uh, realms in the Commonwealth will, will have that debate. My own view is that uh, we have uh, an act of succession. The succession is clear, and uh, certainly my role and that of the other members of the viceregal family is to make that as smooth and as thoughtful as it possibly can be. Um, when I do get into these debates, very often with school children, um, <laughs> I say, you know, um, Canada has evolved uh, since 1867. Uh, we're the product of a thousand years of constitutional history. Um, we have made changes when changes were appropriate in how we govern ourselves, beginning with the, the British North America Act in 1867, our Constitution Act of 1982. But always be conscious of what it is you want. And if you're making change, uh, why uh, that change seems quite compelling and what you're getting into. And if you wanted to look for, if you wanted to name 10 countries around the world that seem to have government that pretty well satisfies the needs of the vast majority of their people, and has a degree of trust, you'd probably have on that list, you'd have Denmark, Sweden, Norway, United Kingdom, Netherlands, Australia, New Zealand, Canada. What's common to those? They're all constitutional monarchies with vigorous parliamentary democracies. So something has been working well for us. Um, and I think it is very attractive in a um, uh, political entity uh, to, to divide head of state and head of government because mm -hmm. your head of government has to do with the business of government and the head of state in, in Badgett's word has to do with the dignity of government and so it's appropriate that we look after the honor system in, in the head of state role here in Canada and our honor system is, is the most meritocratic based on merit without political influence in the world and that's as it should be if you're going to honor people of excellence as people that deserve special recognition, you want to be sure that it's excellence that is pretty well accepted as excellence by the vast majority of your people. Um, so there are advantages to having the two separate. The United States, for example, joins head of state and head of government in one person. Uh, that's a big load to carry. Okay. You've got about one more month in this, in this house and in this role. What do you hope to do with it? Well, run hard right to the finish line. Um, we were uh, three days in the north. Um, and uh, that's the seventh visit we've made to the north in the time we've here. Another very important part of that. And I should say again, with emphasis on the north, uh, we took the polar medal, one medal a year, and that is now up to 50 medals a year to recognize people that have made great contributions in the north. And again, through the foundation, we are the um, operating manager for the Arctic Inspiration Prize, which uh, we dubbed the Nobel Prize of the North. So 
three last three days in the north were devoted to more understanding of the north and promoting those things. Um, we have a lot of events between now and September 30th, and we'll be we'll be running hard, and then uh, we'll finish and take a big deep breath and say, "Boy, that's been terrific." I think that about wraps it up, sir. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. We appreciate it. A delight to see you, Paul. And that's the end of our exit interview with outgoing Governor General David Johnston, who was speaking with McLean senior writer Paul Wells. That's it for this week's episode. For more of your politics and power, join us next week on The Hill. Thank you.